Please open your copies of God's Word to the Epistle to the Hebrews. The Epistle to the Hebrews and chapter 1, please. It's all the way in the New Testament. Just after Titus and Philemon. Just before James. So the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Hebrews, to the Hebrew Christians, and reading together the whole of chapter 1, please. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. May it please the Lord to bless his word to us as we read it and hear it together. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is for ever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all, that is the angels, ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word and we, we trust with the Lord's help this evening to examine the last clause, the last part of verse 2 and then the whole of verse 3 together. 
which is these words, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Amen. Let us briefly pray. Let us call upon the name of the Lord for help. Much help is needed, not only in the preaching, but there is much help needed there, but also in the hearing of the word of God. Let us all pray, especially the young ones. Let's pray together, youngsters, that the Lord would help us to listen to the preaching and to understand it, and that we would hear and believe. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank thee for thy word. We thank thee that we have the truth of God written down in black and white, that we are not as many cast adrift among a troubled sea of man's philosophies and ideas and lies, but we have thy word, and that thou hast spoken to us, and thy word is truth, and thy word reveals thyself to us, and thou art glorious, and thou art to be feared, and thou art to be loved. Thy word also reveals who we are, far less flattering, of course, for we are not good, and we do not do good by nature. And yet we see also that thou art the author of the gospel, thou art the author of salvation, and thou hast shown great mercy and pity to save sinners, to save sinners to fill a kingdom, a great kingdom, an eternal kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. So help us this evening, we pray thee to hear, to understand, help young and old. Help me, Lord, for thou knowest that I am not sufficient for these things in and of myself. My sufficiency is of thee. So give that help, pour out thy spirit. Lord, give me that grace, that strength, for I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Hear us for his name's sake, for his glory. Oh God, save souls even tonight. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. So children, and not so young children, if you think of Jesus Christ. If you think of Jesus of Nazareth, where do your thoughts go to? Your thoughts may go, and they probably will go back to 2,000 years ago, to this man of Nazareth, with his preaching ministry, with his healing ministry, walking the highways and the byways of Judea, even going around Samaria, sometimes through Samaria, all the way above there into Galilee, into these areas of the Holy Land. And we may have heard the names, we, we may have probably not been there. But the Holy Land where the Lord was. And we think of the Lord Jesus Christ there in Judea. But if you were to go back further and think, What's the earliest thing that we know about the Lord Jesus Christ as he was on the earth? You might go back to Bethlehem. You think, well, this is where the Lord Jesus was born. Born in a manger outside of Bethlehem. 
But in truth, the history of the Lord Jesus Christ goes back a lot further than Bethlehem. It goes back far further than that, because this Jesus of Nazareth, before he became a baby, before he became a man, had been for all eternity, without any ceasing, without any change, without any stop, but had always been whom? The eternal Son of God. Always been the eternal Son of God. And so that preceding his birth and all that is, has happened before we meet him being born in the scriptures of the New Testament. And then if we think it's to the end of the Gospels, and what happens at the end of the Gospels? Well, Christ suffers terribly. He's crucified as a criminal, as the worst criminal of the Roman Empire. He's humiliated, having been beaten, tortured by the Roman soldiers, which was nothing in comparison with the wrath of his father poured out upon him. Poured out upon the body of Jesus Christ, upon the soul of Christ, we should say. And then he dies a real death, and then he is in the grave. And what happens after that? Well, we have his resurrection. He, he rises from the grave. If you go to a graveyard today, you will not see that happening. But in this, in this place, in this garden of Gethsemane, that's what happened. He, he rose from the dead, and 40 days later, he ascended up into heaven. And now, he is the eternal king of glory. And will ever be the eternal king of glory. And so although our, our understanding, our, our idea of Jesus Christ is quite a narrow one, being born sometime before 0 uh, BC and, and, and dying sometime around 2930. So having lived a, a life of about 33 years... And we think that's Jesus, but that's, that's, only, that's, that's not even a slither, that's not even a, 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 the, the width of a piece of paper, and I mean narrow-wise, of who Christ is. He is, as the Bible says, from everlasting to everlasting God. So what do we understand then? If, if he was eternally God and he's sitting on the throne... But he's brought low. He's brought very low. And when we say that somebody has been brought low, we say somebody has been humbled. Now, the Lord was not pride-filled, and he is not pride-filled for him to be humbled, but we do say that there is a humiliation, a similar word, but not the same. There was a great humiliation in bringing the eternal Son of God, not off his throne because he was ever on his throne and still was when he was walking the streets of Jerusalem in his Godhead, or in his divinity is better said. But bringing him down to earth to become a, a real man and eventually to go to the cross and the, and the grave, we call that his humiliation. He was being brought low, so low, brought to earth, to a sinful earth and made in the form of sinful man and then and as I've mentioned already and then nailed to a cross as if he was the worst of sinful men and then put in a grave as if he was a sinner 
because the wages of sin is death. And he remained in that grave for a time. Three days, on the third day at least, he rose again. And then what do we see? We see them that he, after 40 days, goes to heaven. He ascends up into heaven. And again, we see, is he not the eternal Son of God? Yes, he is, but he has taken his humanity with him. And that's a foretaste of taking his people with him. And so I'd like just to look at this evening very briefly, and it might be quite brief, concerning Christ's humiliation and exaltation, but more specifically this, the salvation in Christ's humiliation and exaltation. In Christ being brought low for our sakes and then exalted because his work was completed, his work was perfect, his work was acceptable. And so as you look at our text for this evening, we see at the end of verse 2, the last clause, the last little part of the sentence, speaking of Christ, by whom, by Christ, also he, that is God, made the worlds. By whom also he made the worlds. I'd like us briefly, very firstly, to look at the divine Christ. The divine Christ. What does divine mean? Divine means, means being of God. Christ is, is God. There is an aspect of Christ that is God. There's an aspect of Christ that is man. He is the God-man. And we're thinking now of that divine nature of Christ. And what do we see when we look at the divine nature? Because there are a few things that we have in, 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 the, in, in our verse or verses this evening. And first, that Christ is our creator. That Christ made you and me, by whom also he made the worlds. Now the expression, the worlds, doesn't just point uh, to the world that we stand on, but to all those areas of life that he created, those, the, the, those we would say in, in, in modern language, the biospheres, the, the places where animals or fish or whatever would exist and live. So think of the, think of the earth, think of the seas, Think of the heavens, think of the heaven of heavens, where all of life has been created, whether it be physical life, whether it be spiritual life. But by Christ, God made the world. When we say by him, what does that mean by him? It means that in this, well, John 1 and verse 3 helps us to understand that word. All things were made by him. Again, that word. And without him was not anything made that was made. So what was the relationship there between God the Father and God the Son? Well, we're not going to get into that deepness, that depth tonight. But what we do know this, that there was nothing created that has been created without the Son. We might think that the Father did all the creating and, and, and maybe the Son was just watching. No, not at all. We know that in the very first two verses of Genesis chapter 1 that we have all three. So in the beginning, they're all there. Elohim, God. The gods, literally in the Hebrew. The gods he made. So we have the plural of persons and singularity of their work. 
In the beginning, the gods, he created heaven and earth. We know that the spirits moved upon the surface of the waters, the spirits there, God is there, the triune God, but also we see that God spoke. So let there be like the word of God is clearly present because by whom also he made the worlds. So think then what the Lord has made, what the Lord Jesus Christ as the creator, the co-creator with the Father and with the Spirit, what did he create? He created everything. He created animals and he created angels. He created the sun and the moon and the stars and he created you. He created you and he created me and therefore Christ has a claim upon you as your creator. You are his creature, I am his creature. And when you have made something out of your own materials for your own benefit, you're the boss, you're in charge. You rule, you determine, you possess, he created you, he owns you, he has every right over you and over your life because Christ is our creator. He is not just the man of Nazareth. He is the creator himself. But we see also as we, as we open up verse 3, we see that Christ is God's glory. Christ is God's glory. Hebrews 1 and verse 3, in the first part it says about Jesus Christ who being the brightness of his glory, being the brightness of whose glory? God's glory. Jesus Christ is the brightness of God's glory. Now the Father's glory is invisible to us. We cannot see it, we cannot perceive it from here on earth. We will only see the, 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 the glory of the Father when it shines forth to us in Jesus Christ. So the brightness, the, the high point, the fullness of God's glory is seen in Christ. And what do we think then of the glory of God? Are we just thinking of a, of a bright shining light? Well, the apostles saw that on the Mount of Transfiguration, so that's certainly part of it. But what we're really thinking now is of the glory of God that is seen in the God-man. This Jesus of Nazareth as he's on the earth, and yet he has something that no other man has. He has the glory of God in his person. He has the glory of God in his words. He has the glory of God in his actions. Everything about him is glorious. And so we could sum that up and say the glory of God shines in and through Jesus Christ in his perfect humanity. And we can thank God that we can have him in his perfections as our perfect friend and as our perfect saviour. God's glory shining in and through Christ. And we can say, well, we're not there 2,000 years ago. But believer, you know yourself that when you read either the prophecies about Christ or the reality of Christ in the Gospels or the things that are opened up about Christ in the epistles or the future that Christ has set before us in, 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 in Revelation, I'm not saying it's all future, but we see and we glory, we know in our hearts that our hearts are stirred when we have a fresh glimpse of Jesus Christ. 
when we read in the middle of some obscure prophet, as it were, at something that is just said, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the wisdom in Proverbs is Jesus Christ personified. Glory upon glory we can read in the Scriptures, and thank God that we have them. Because we're not alive 2,000 years ago. But we don't need to be. Because we have the Scriptures. And so the glory of Christ that continually shines through, even through his word, to reveal uh, the person of Christ to us. We could continue in in other matters, and we will, when we get to the middle of verse 3. So Christ is is our creator, Christ is God's glory, and Christ is also God incarnate. Now we've touched upon this already. Incarnate, what does that mean? It means made flesh. Because of God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He is a spirit. He doesn't have, God does not have a body. He doesn't have what we say, parts and passions. He doesn't have arms in that way. Now the Lord uses these terms in the scripture so that we would understand what he's talking about. The right hand of the Lord. Etc. His nose. Speaking of of the wrath of God. Etc. So he, he speaks of himself having parts of his body, but he doesn't have those because he is an infinite, eternal spirit. Infinite. We might have the idea that he's a spirit, that he's eternal, that he's long lived and he will always live and he's always lived. But when you understand that he's infinite, then there's absolutely no way for us to picture God. It just goes on and on and on and on in that way. In fact, we can't even say that he's, he's not infinite in the, sense of, in the sense of physical matter because that doesn't even work with God because he's spirit. He is spirit. So God is a spirit and yet... What do we know from the Bible is that the eternal Son of God, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, becomes man, takes on human flesh, takes on human form, becomes a real human being with what we say a reasonable, that is a reasoning soul. He's able to think, he's able to feel, he's able to understand as a human, as a real human. The Lord didn't just put on a mask didn't just put on a, on, a, on a costume. He became truly man, but he was still God. Christ is God incarnate. And that, that's what we understand when we read those words, and we, extend, we understand more, and the express image of his person. So Jesus, by whom God made all the worlds, who being the brightness of God's glory, we're still thinking of Jesus Christ, And it says, and he is the express image of his, that is God's person. And what does that mean? Well, express image means an exact image, an exact resemblance. I say, of course, course God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit would, would of course be similar because they're all one God. No, he's talking about an image. He's speaking about the humanity of Jesus Christ. In the humanity of Jesus Christ, there is the exact image of God the Father to be seen. 
some ways it extends what we're looking at in God's glory. Now that word that's used here, ex- express image, an exact, an exact image, is one word in the Greek. And it's a word that means a coin being minted. So when you get a coin, you get a blank coin, and you, you'd place it, yeah, wherever you'd place it. And then you'd come with your die, and in that, in that die, as it were, that, that, that piece of metal that, that, has, that has a king's head in, and it has the king's name in. And then you put it on the blank of that metal to make a new coin. I'm not giving anyone any ideas for forgery. But this is how coins were made and still are in, in, in a different way. And you'd raise your hammer and you'd whack the die and it would push in. And it would force the impression in that blank piece of circular metal exactly what was on the other side. Yes, in reverse. So you could read properly the faces yeah, but what was in there is now impressed in the metal. An express image. And that's what the word is used. That's where the word comes from. That there's something being pressed in there and it's left its mark, but a very clear mark. And so in the case of a, of a, of a, of a, of a coin, when we still have coins in this, in this day and age that do the same, you'd have the image of the ruler of the king and maybe the name of the ruler in the, or the king. And that's what's being pointed to here about Christ. That Christ is an exact copy of the Father. It's almost dangerous to say copy. But he is, he is in himself the express image of the Father. And indeed, the Greek word that's used, and I don't want us to trip up on the word, but it's a word that we know. We know this word. It's a word that we have in the English language. Character. Character is the word in the Greek. Now, just to explain to you that the word character in, in the Greek does mean the impression that's left upon the coin after it's been stamped. And now we use it for something else. But it actually helps us in this regard because we're not thinking of the external, the looks of Christ. We're not saying, oh, Christ looks, when you look at a child, you say, oh, that one looks like his mom, that one looks like his dad, that one looks like his Uncle Billy. Uh, Whatever it may be, that child, they all look like a member of the family. But we're not talking about the outward look of the Lord. We're talking about the inward appearance. So in that case, the word character is actually quite helpful. We're thinking about the actual character of Christ. The person of Christ. The the soul of Christ. And again, we're still thinking about him in his humanity as a man. And so we understand that in how he lives and how he lives and how, uh, and how he behaves. We know that the Son is holy. We know that the Son is righteous. We know that the, the Son is kind. And therefore we know what the Father's like. And so when we see Christ in the Scriptures, and I've often referred to this uh, going to John chapter 14. But here we have the same truth, the same doctrine. Is that when we see Christ and we see how he deals with people. We see how he speaks to people. Even how he speaks against people. We're understanding something of the divine person of the Father. Because that's what it says. That Jesus Christ is the express 
image of his person, of the Father's person. But what we also learn when we're thinking about Christ being God is what we have here is, is that Christ is our sustainer. He sustains us. It says there at the end, not the end, now in the middle of verse 3, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Upholding all things. All things. And so what we understand then is that as we looked at in the very beginning, Christ is not only the creator of all things, the creator of all the worlds, but he is the powerful and merciful and wise sustainer or upholder of all things. He doesn't just make them, he doesn't just wind them up and just let them go. As some people would say about God, that's not true at all. Everything having been created by Christ, through Christ, with Christ, is now sustained by Christ. And it says upholding all things by the word of his power, by his powerful word. And so you've got to think of this then. What a, when we're thinking now of Christ as the God-man, as Jesus of Nazareth, is that when he was walking on earth, the ground he walked on was held in place by him. The food that he ate, he had grown, he had made grow. The air molecules that the God-man breathed, he held those molecules together by the word of his power. The sun shines because Jesus says so. The seasons continue because Jesus makes it so. And that's not just concerning him, it's concerning each and every one of us. I am able to breathe. I have a heartbeat, I have a life, I have faculties. I have my existence, continuing existence, continuing life. Because I'm upheld by this God-man, Jesus Christ. It's not just that he was there at our conception, making sure everything went well. It's not just there that he was at our birth, uh, bringing us into the world. Yes, he did both of those and kept us for those nine months. It's not just that he, he, he gave us life, but he has been sustaining us. Children, you get new teeth because Jesus gives them to you. All that we receive, all good and perfect gifts, come from above. And we say, yes, from the Father of lights. Is Jesus not the Father of lights? All things were created by him, including the lights, the sun, moon, and the stars. And so then we understand that how good and kind Jesus is to all that live. How merciful he is to bring you into his house this evening. To be so good and patient and kind to you. Why? Well, to be in his presence, yes, but for you to hear the gospel. And for those who have not been touched by the gospel, not been changed by the gospel, to give you the opportunity to hear the gospel and believe and be saved. Which brings us to our second point. We've, we've considered the divine Christ and how glorious he is. Secondly, let us consider the saving Christ. The saving Christ. 
Because he who has created you and sustains you and has this great and glorious power is also a saviour. Because we move on in verse 3 to see, having read, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins. When Jesus had by himself purged our sins. We see a few things. We see something of a, of a unique work. It's not a common work. It's a one-off work, yes. It's unique because it's one-off. It's unique because there's only one that's ever done it. And that is this God-man. Because the reason why the eternal Son of God became Jesus of Nazareth, well, it was to do the will of his Father. That's what he says all the time. But what was the will of his Father? It was to save his people from their sins. The God... The Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, as it were, moved heaven and earth to come down to save rebellious, wicked, godless sinners. A unique work. And it was only Christ that could do that work. The work to save. But why is that? Why was it only Jesus that could do that? Because he is the only begotten of the Father. And the Father sent the only begotten into the world that all that would believe on him, whosoever should believe on him, or would believe on him, should not perish but have everlasting life. So there was only one to send. The, Lord only, the Father only has one Son. The only begotten and he sent the Son. And the Son went willingly. So he's the only begotten. And what we do see, it's unique in the sense that it's Christ who did this work on his own. He did this work all on his own. That's what the by himself reveals to us. Because salvation is from beginning to end the exclusive work of Christ in purchasing salvation. Not in planning salvation, that's with the Father. Not applying salvation to sinners, that's the work of the Spirit. They're all involved, and there's much overlap. But specifically, who purchased redemption? Who came down and became a man? Who, who, who died upon that cross to pay for sinners' wickedness? It was Jesus. It was the Son of God become man. He alone could suffer the wrath of the Father. We cannot. We cannot. Do you know what suffering the wrath of the Father means for an unrepentant sinner? It means for your soul, it means hell. But for your resurrected body, it means the lake of fire forever and ever and ever because you're never paying anything off. You're suffering the wrath of God for unrepentant sin and you are still a sinner who will not repent and cannot repent. And so for us, it's, a, it's an eternal damnation. So we could never save ourselves. But Christ did that work. He alone came from heaven to suffer the wrath of the Father. He alone could die a death that could be used by the Father to pay for sinners' sins. And he died alone. 
all by himself, forsaken of God to reconcile us to God, to make friends again between us and God, we being by nature the enemies of God, and therefore God is, because of our sin, is our enemy. He is against us because he's righteous and he's wrathful against our sin. But Jesus came to reconcile us, to bring us together, to make us friends again, and much more. And that's what it means there when it says, and when he had by himself purged our sins. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It is this Jesus. It is this Jesus who is the Son of God made man. There is no other way of salvation. And then we move on to consider that work of saving in his purging work. When he had by himself purged our sins. Because the point of the work of Christ was and is to deal with sin. To deal with sin. And we could say much, but let us make it this clear. What does sin do to your soul? What does sin do to your mind? What does sin do to your heart and to your emotions and to your whole body? What does sin do to you? It corrupts you. What does corrupt mean? It makes it it makes it bad. It makes it rotten. And you can well imagine on a hot day that there's an animal that gets knocked over by a car. It dies. It's on the side of the road. And on, the hot, on a hot day, very quickly, that dead body of that cat or that dog, choose your own if you're a dog lover or a cat lover, it rots. It stinks. It begins to putrefy. There are maggots in there and and all these other things, and I won't go into any more detail. But let me just say that, that morally and spiritually speaking, that describes your soul and my soul in our state of sin. Dead and corrupt. An offensive stench to God. Morally and spiritually. And Because sin has has left such a filthy stain upon our souls and our hearts are hard and dirty and we could say encrusted by immorality and death that the soul needs cleaning. It needs cleaning from sin and from guilt but not just a surface wash. Not just a, a brushing off of the dust and maybe a wiping over. That is not enough. Because the corruption goes down to the very core of the heart. The soul needs cleansing. A deep and thorough purge. Now you might not know what the word purge means, but it's that very idea that something will be, that we be cleansed. You can think of a high pressure washer uh, being, being put into a dirty uh, sewage pipe. And, and it's, it's, it's there and it's washing it through and it takes a long time and you're cleaning the, cleaning the, the walls of that sewage pipe until finally all the water uh, running clear and it's being cleared out completely. And yet it was so caked and filthy and stench ridden. It needs to be purged. And that's what our soul is like. It is so wickedly corrupt, so stinking, so filthy, that Christ must purge it. 
Not a simple, superficial cleaning, but through and through. And that's what Christ came to do. And that's what Christ through the gospel still does. It wasn't just for those that saw him 2,000 years ago. He sent forth his word, his powerful world, his word into the world. That souls would be purged. But what can purge a soul? What can purge a soul from all its corruptedness, from all its wickedness, from its godlessness? What can do that? Well, we know it's not good works. We know it's not wishful thinking. We know it's not even water. Water touches the body, doesn't touch the soul. We know what it is that he purges our souls with and purges away our sins, and that is his blood. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. When he had by himself purged our sins, thirdly, and we're thinking about that phrase, is that his completed work. So his unique work and his purging work and his completed work from those self-same words. When he had by himself purged our sins. When When Christ shouted cried out from the cross, it is finished. He makes something very clear to us here, that the payment for salvation, the salvation that that he purchased for his people, and that the purging work had been done. It was completed. That's what we read here. When he had by himself Purged, he had purged our sins, our sins. And the apostle writing to the Hebrew Christians speaks in the past tense. The Lord has done this, it has been done. And yet some of these might have only been saved a a few weeks, a few months, a few years, well after the cross work of Jesus Christ. So the language here is all past tense. And that that should help us to understand that it is a once completed work. That there is nothing to be added to this once completed work. Neither from us, neither from God. Because it is a complete and perfect work. Perfected 2,000 years ago. And yet because of who Christ is. Because of who he is. And the glorious person that he is. That 2,000 year old work is as fresh and as powerful as the day that it was purchased. And therefore it means this everyone. Is the purging blood is still able to cleanse the worst and most wicked of sinners. Now you might say to yourself, I'm not the worst of sinners then understand that blood has, does not have the most difficult of jobs in your case. You might say, but I would say no. Sin to each individual is such a terrible thing. And because it is only the blood of Jesus Christ that can cleanse it, and the suffering that he must undergo to save one soul, let alone a whole people, was very severe because we do not really know 
even when we study it, the sinfulness of sin, how terrible our sin is. And yet we sin. We may not mean to sin. We may actual sin. We have bad habits. We may make foolish mistakes. And yet this is all sin. And, that, and that's the Christian trying to live a good life. No, but it is the saving work of Jesus Christ. We see there's a divine Christ, there's a saving Christ, and finally the exalted Christ. The exalted Christ. And we read that at the end of verse 3, that Christ sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down on the right hand of God. This is, this is language that would help us to understand what's going on. The, the scriptures talk about God having a throne. We think, well, does God need a throne? But it's an expression of his majesty. It's an expression of his ruling. It's an expression of the fact that he is the most high. If you read even those, 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 those portions of the, the Old Testament prophets or Revelation, Revelation chapter 4, where we have the, um, you see into the throne room of heaven and you realize there is nobody higher than the Lord. There are no angels flying above God. Everyone is down around the glassy sea. They're all worshipping the Lord. They're all falling down. They're all humbling themselves before him. They're making themselves smaller that he, relatively, is higher. He is the most high God. And it is to the throne of God that the God-man Jesus goes. And that's what we see here. So he sends into heaven. There are details left out because that's not his point. He says that when he had by himself purged our sins, understanding the death and the resurrection and the 40 days and the ascension, and then getting to heaven, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. We see then, understand, firstly, when we're thinking of the exalted Christ, and very briefly, that he is enthroned as the king of glory. He's enthroned as the king of glory because when Christ rose into heaven... What did he do there? What happened to him? Well, he was crowned. He was crowned and he was enthroned. That's something that a number of people are uh, looking forward to uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks, I believe. Uh, king Charles III. Uh, Charles, the name Charles as a king has never been good for the church, by the way, if we look back at history. But this King Charles III is to be crowned and on his coronation, he will be sitting on the coronation throne. And you will see something uh, or understand something in a, in a worldly way. What happens, what happens then in the coronation and the, the enthroning gives us an idea that there is a crown to be placed upon the head of him who is worthy to receive that crown. And that there is a place on a throne for him to sit. The following chapter, Hebrews chapter 2, in a couple of places, especially verse 9, you might want to turn with me, speaks of the coronation. It says in chapter 2 of Hebrews and verse 9, But we see Jesus, so he's been looking at it, Psalm 8 and applying portions of Psalm 8 to Jesus Christ. It says, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, 
crowned with honor, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. That's a summary of this sermon. Could have saved quite a bit of time and just read out that verse. But we see there that he was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, but now we see him crowned with glory and honor. He's crowned. He receives this uh, this coronation, and Christ himself foretells of his enthronement in Luke 22 and 69, and he says this, Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. And here we see that expressed as, as the majesty on high, because God is regal, God is a great king, God is majestic and glorious, God is sovereign. He reigns and rules overall. And so then, Jesus of Nazareth, the God incarnate, he comes in his pure and perfect resurrected humanity, having been crucified on the Roman cross, having died that real death, having been buried in a tomb, having risen again, having having ascended into heaven with a resurrected, living and breathing body, now sits upon the throne of God, sits on the right hand, the place of honor. The place of honor on a throne. He sits upon that throne. But whose throne is it? It's the throne of God. So what right does Christ have to sit there? Because he is God. There is no God beside me, the Lord says. There is no other God, that means. There is no other God because this is one God. We have the persons, but there is one God. And Christ sits on the throne of God, being God. And what do we understand about what Christ does upon the throne? As he sits on the right hand of the majesty on high, Well, he rules the world. Christ rules the world. In Matthew 28 and verse 18, the Lord says to his disciples, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. He had all the power in heaven and earth as the eternal Son of God. So what is the Lord talking about? He's saying, as the God-man, The God-man who has purchased redemption for his people, who was about to ascend up into heaven, has now received all power in heaven and earth as the God-man. As God, he already had it, but as man, he has earned it. As I mentioned, he takes our humanity up into heaven with him. That we would know that even in the weaknesses of our own humanity, If we have that union with Jesus Christ, we will be wherever he is. And he can make a home for us in heaven. We can breathe in heaven. We can eat in heaven because Jesus is in heaven with a real body. So he rules. He he, he rules the world. But secondly, he's not only enthroned as the, as the, the king of glory, he's also enthroned as the king of salvation. Because there's something very special that Christ does on that throne. Do you know what the Christ does on the throne when he's up there? He prays. 
He prays. He's a praying king. He's a ruling king. He's a glorious king. He's a praying king. Hebrews 7 and verse 25 opens up uh, the truth of that to us, reveals it to us. Wherefore, it says, He, that is Christ, is able also to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. There's a lot in there, but what does it essentially say? It says that Christ there on the throne prays for all those that come to God by him. That's the second part of that verse. Seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Well, who are them? Them are those that call upon the name of the Lord. They are those that seek forgiveness and salvation. They are those that desire the completed work of Christ applied to them because it says Christ is able to save to the uttermost. That is, he's able to save you completely, not partially, not just for a few days, not just for a few weeks, but absolutely completely, forever and ever, you are absolutely saved and absolutely purged. Because the King of glory is also the King of salvation. He is able to bring you to heaven. He is able to care for you. He's able to look after you, you, the the dissipated body in the grave. and, And one of these days, he will reunite soul and body. Because he is the King of salvation. And so therefore, if you are not saved this evening, if you cannot say your sins are forgiven you, if you cannot say that you, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and he has saved you, you know that he loves you, and you know that your sins are forgiven you, then you are to look to this king who sits on the right hand of the majesty on high. You're also to look to the truth that he has a completed saving work. And it is his blood that will purge your soul from all your sin. And we know this about the Lord Jesus. He has mercy enough. He is a merciful God and Savior. He has power enough. All power in heaven and earth has been given to him. He is able. The question is, are you willing? Are you willing to come to the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you willing to obey the command that goes forth to come to him, to repent of your sin, to come unto him for salvation? Because this king sent me. This king sent me. You may may say that sounds arrogant. No. Every biblical preacher is an ambassador of Christ. And I will finish with what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20. Speaking of all preachers, faithful preachers at least, he says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. We work for the king. We speak the words of the king. We have an authority to speak the words of the king on his behalf to others. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. As though God was pleading for your soul's sake and for your repentance and faith. This is strong language. This is strong language. There'd be those in the Calvinistic world that would say, well, no, God does not plead to anyone. Read the scriptures. 
Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us, that is through us, we pray you. I add my pleading to this. In Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. What does that mean altogether? Again, it's talking about the work that we have of preaching the gospel. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us through our preaching, we pray you in the place of Christ, as if Christ is here in the pulpit himself, pleading for your soul, pleading for you to stop playing religion, stop holding on to your sins, but to come to Christ repenting and believing and have your sins purged and have a home in heaven with the King of glory. But you must be reconciled to God. You must have peace made with God. Be ye reconciled with God. Make peace with God. Repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we do give thee thanks that there is a glorious gospel to proclaim, that there is good news where there is great bad news, that we are sinners. Oh Lord, we need purging. We need cleansing. We need thee to come by thy word and to bless the going forth of thy word that not one soul would lead the building without that convicting and converting work of the Holy Ghost taking the glories, the glorious work of Christ and the word of Christ and planting it in, that the bondage to sin and to Satan would be broken in Jesus' name even tonight. That there would be new birth. We thank thee, Lord, for the, for the physical babies thou art pleased to grant to the congregation. But we pray for spiritual births. We pray for thee, O Lord, to look with great mercy and pity upon all of these souls and to do that work that only thou canst do. Send forth thy spirit, Lord. Send forth thy spirit that, new, that souls would be purged or be sprinkled in the blood and have a new and eternal life and a new life here to the glory of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his everlasting glory. Amen.